1: Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chansey. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the next episode of uh, Tax Alpha Solutions. Today's guest with me is uh, Mark Epstein. So um, he provides outsourced general counsel, must be an attorney, services to growing companies throughout the world. He's got more than 20 years of experience, and I know he works in the um, technology, licensing and strategic relationship development in the data space. He's going to have to explain a little bit of what that means to us. But um, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Glad to have you. Yeah, oh, glad to be here. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. How's the how's the weather up there in Philadelphia?
0: Well, yeah, I have to confess I have gotten to the point in life where I looked at the weather in Philadelphia and I said, I'm gonna to go to Florida for a couple of weeks. So I am actually not in Philadelphia right now.
1: <laughs> it's so bad there, you don't wanna be there. That's what it is.
0: <laughs> That's the one way of pointing it out. Yeah.
1: Totally understand. Well, good stuff. Well, I appreciate it. So, you know, um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about, so you've been doing this for 20 years, right? So tell us a little bit about the educational background that you have and then how you decided to use it to kind of get into this space. What was that journey like that got you to the space where you're doing what you are now? Because I'm sure that this wasn't what you're doing today has never, ever been what somebody thought they were going to be doing 20 years ago, right? (laughs)
0: so it's an interesting story. So I started off as a computer guy way back in the mists of ancient time when computers took up an entire building and you had to reserve terminal space and everything else. And that was when I started working with computers first and foremost. And it was a lot harder back then. And I honestly didn't want to work that hard when it came to writing computer programs. It would take me weeks, if not longer to write something that today a 15 year old could do in 20 minutes. And so I stepped away a little bit from the technology, went off to law school, um, enjoyed being a lawyer. I love talking about things, putting things together and so on. And when I got out, the reason I got involved initially with the space that I got involved with is because lawyers don't understand technology very well. Lawyers are often very smart people. They're very good at what they do, but they don't understand technology and they don't understand how to talk to people who are in that space. So my initial move into this was I could bridge that gap. And in fact, I was involved with some very early work on the internet, when the internet, where we literally had to wheel a computer into a courtroom, plug it into AOL and dial it up in front of the judge so that she could see what a website was. Um, So I got involved with that. And then I got involved with startup culture where, again, you had companies that were desperate for people who understood technology, people who understood the law, and people who understood how to put the two of those things together. Um, I did that. I enjoy working with young companies, which is how I moved from technology to certain some of the other related spaces where I also do some work. But it's the idea of finding people who have an idea to start a business to grow that business. I love working with those people. You know, I don't like working with the big organizations as much where you, know, you get a company that's got 50,000 employees worldwide. They're, it's just not as interesting. It takes, you know, it takes longer to make decisions and get stuff done. I like the people who are young, entrepreneurial in spirit, even if not young in age. As you, know, you can tell from my lack of hair. Uh, But, you know, working with people who are along those lines, that's how I got into this space. And I, I, I love it. I love helping those people find a business, start a business, grow the business, and if necessary, find a way out of that business for them to be successful. So that's the story of how I ended up where I am today.
1: Nice. So in a way, you're um, a translator because you learned two separate languages. You learned a tech language and you learned a law language and you realized that that both of those people didn't speak each other's language and you kind of connect the dots between the two in a way, right?
0: That's exactly right. You know, a lot of the problem that people have with lawyers especially is lawyers think, uh, first of all, we always think we're the smartest people in the room. <laughs> but the other thing is it is very difficult for lawyers to not think about anything other than the law. So the truth is that people lead whole lives. Businesses in particular have a whole set of different dynamics that are beyond what lawyers think is important. You know, there, there's a true story that no lawyer ever got fired for a law firm for telling a client not to do something. But if you don't ever do anything, you don't have a business. And so a large part of what I do is I take... The dynamic of understanding how these things work and the dynamic of understanding the risks that go into it and fold them together and say, Hey, look, this is how you can do things in a way that makes sense without making yourself unnecessarily in a hazardous situation. So that's how I approach things. And that dynamic has been, that's the model I operate under. That's the way I move my, yeah, that's the way I move my clients forward. And it's been pretty successful for me. Gotcha. Okay.
1: Yeah. makes a lot of sense. I think everyone on the podcast will um, have experienced a relationship where an attorney said no before.
0: <laughs> yeah. Some of my clients call, call their attorneys, the revenue prevention department.
1: <laughs> I would, I've heard that statement before. so Totally understand what you mean. So interesting, the space that you're in, um, how do you categorize that space? So let me pre-frame that a little bit. The people that are coming to you that are starting those businesses in that space, are they, is it like angel investing type stuff? Are they more in the venture capital type stuff or these private equity? Like, obviously we're talking about stuff on the private side and the way that you pre-framed a little bit about what you're talking about, it sounds like their growth with an exit in mind many times And many times Mm -hmm. I found that to be through maybe a strategic, right? Um, You know, maybe a public or, you know, somebody else, a really big player in their vertical or in their niche. So what a category
0: do you call like where you start to get involved with these people? So typically where I get involved with these people is one of two points, either. And I think I mentioned an example earlier, either it's somebody who's brand new, who's got an idea and, Nothing else. They say, hey, I've got an idea. I want to start a business. I want to go out there and raise money and so on. And again, from the very early stages, and it's not, you know, it's primarily the technology space, but you know, so I've, I've done some other sectors as well. But it's it's they come in and they say, I've got an idea. I want to do things the right way. Or how do I do things? Because a lot of folks who have ideas don't even know what to do beyond that. And so I will help them structure things in a way that will allow them to go out to either your angel investors, your venture capitals, and so on. The other thing that I work with is a lot of companies where they start off and they go out and they say, well, I'm starting a business. I'm going to go out and hire a gigantic law firm to help me do that. And this goes back to my earlier point about these gigantic law firms not getting the needs of a startup business. Uh, And so you know, you approach one of these gigantic law firms. And again, not to take anything away from them. They are brilliant and they, you know, they justify what they do, but they don't necessarily think like a startup business needs to think. And so again, you need to take a different risk profile. If you're a scrappy little company, you need to take a bigger risk on certain things than if you're you know, IBM or Cisco or Sodexo or what have you. You just can't afford to be as cautious because you need to, you need to grow. And so a lot of these companies will come to me and they'll say, yeah, we had a relationship with giant firm X, and they're not necessarily helping us where we need to be. And so they'll come to me and I'll again to my point about this outsourced general counsel role, I can come at it from that business perspective, where in the same way that if you had a full-time general counsel, the guy sitting down the hall who's enmeshed in your business, who understands what you're trying to do, yeah, that's where they'll bring me in. That's how they'll bring me into that discussion. I'll become a part of that team in that way. And help them make those decisions and grow, do the next step, the additional raises, and if necessary, it's happened for a couple of my clients, build for the exit so that they can make that exit as smoothly and as cleanly as possible.
1: I like it. I like it. You know, that's, uh, I'm glad I asked that so that you could go a little bit more into detail. The risk profile that it takes to be a new business venture or a new business startup is so Incongruent with the way a big law firm is going to protect their clients or their customers, right? Like to. Mm-hmm. Way, the way that I see it, and it sounds like you see it the same way, right? It's like in the in the financial services space, there's an old adage that says, um, concentration will make you rich, but diversification will keep you rich, right? And that's, <laughs> so those attorneys are all like, let's diversify this thing out. You know, let's make sure that we're spreading the risk around. Whereas you're like, as this entrepreneur? You're like, no, I see a little sliver of gold right there. And I want to hit it as hard and as fast and as focused as I can, because I think that's how we monetize, right? So- Very interesting point. I love that. So when you talk about leaning into risk, and then you talk about building with the end in mind, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what is that process? Like, how do we, that's so counterintuitive for the average person. They barely have an idea in their head. They don't even have the money to execute. They haven't found all the talent it's going to take to get there. And you're like, we got to think about how we're going to get out of this thing.
0: You're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, we're just getting started over here. Like talk about that conversation. Sure, absolutely. And this is the conversation that does need to happen for companies that do it right. And you're absolutely right that a company can't approach their business necessarily saying, hey, I'm out in 24 months. They need to approach it as a real business. They need to run it as a real business. Or nobody's going to be that interested. I mean, you know, there are obviously exceptions, but people want to buy real companies. They don't want to just buy ideas. But having said that, everybody knows that there are limits. There aren't that many companies that start at zero and grow to become a fortune 50 company. You know, sure. for every Facebook that didn't exist 30 years ago and is giant now, there are 500 other companies that were in the same way that started off grew a little bit and then somebody bought them. And that's or they started off, they grew a little bit and, you know, a private equity company stepped in and took over management. Or you know, maybe they did go public, but again, that's the unusual basis. Any of those strategies though, you need to, it is always a good idea to have your house in order upfront. And that's a large part of the discussion about having the, doing that planning ahead. Is It's really easy. And I see this a lot with companies where they just go out and they get started and they say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll go on to legal Zoom, spend 50 bucks, form a company, start signing stuff and be done with it. And again, there's nothing wrong with that as a strategy, but when you start looking at those exits, and again, this is going to apply whether you're dealing with you're know, getting large enough for a private equity company to buy you, a strategic player to buy you, going public, you need to have your documents in order. And it is, I can tell you with 100% certainty, it is a lot easier to do it in front rather than wait until you get to that point and say, holy crap, what have I been signing for the last five years? And how do we fix it so that these guys coming in aren't going to throw up all over it because they feel like we did some stupid stuff. So that's the, I call it bricklaying. You know, it's sort of, you're laying the foundation for that kind of thing in the future so you can build a solid house. So when and if you do any of these liquidity events, you're ready for it and you've done that so that it's as smooth and as easy as possible. Sure. Well,
1: I think it's, and I don't know if everybody knows this, but I think this is something I know, and you could back this up. Fortune 500 companies today don't grow organically. They grow through acquisition of smaller companies that have a technology or a platform that's accretive to what their core business is. I mean, so I don't know how many people actually realize that today. So there's a very robust market of taking risks, coming up with an idea that that attracts the attention of someone else and having them come in and write a check and bolt it into what they're doing. So...
0: And um, if you think about it, it does make sense to an idea or to a, to a large extent for companies like that, because if you're a, you know, to use a company I've worked with in the past, but if you're a Microsoft and you're looking at it and you say, we have a hole in our portfolio around issue A. Now, either they can go out, throw a ton of money and resources at it, or they can say, hey, here are 10 companies out in the world who've tried this. Let's figure out which one has been most successful to date and use them as a building way. So basically what you're doing is outsourcing R&D, and it's kind of a survival of the fittest to say, hey, if these 10 guys tried all the different options, we're not going to do that internally. We can look at the market, see what these 10 guys have done, choose the best of breed who's been most successful, and buy them. It's a win-win.
1: That's interesting. You know, I think a parallel to that that a lot of people don't know is that in the fund, like a mutual fund business, per se, they'll typically start any one label. will start 10 mutual funds at one time, put a little bit of money in them and see how the manager performs over a three to five year period. And then the one that does the best, they start to promote and market that fund and they kill off the other night, right? It's the exact same thing. Right, so it's kind of funny. It's analogous how it works in both worlds there. So, what would a person need to know? Okay, that's great. I love this. So, so I'm a person. I got an idea, and I come to you. How do I find you? How do I know that Mark Epstein or a guy like Mark Epstein is out there that can help me take this idea and start to turn it into a thing? How does that happen?
0: It's an interesting point, and it's kind of a niche market for what I do. You know, again, most of these people will go out to the large law firms because that's either the the path of experience or what have you. So, going out and finding me is yeah, you know, honestly, it's I just put myself out there. You know, obviously, I use media, I use uh, word of, or social media, I use word of mouth stuff like that. It's really about just finding that relationship. And what's interesting too is for what I do, especially because it's not a large law firm. It's not me sure. and fifty other attorneys. And you know, if you've got question A, you call this guy, and you've got question B, you call this guy, and all this other stuff. It's just me, so it is very much about building a relationship and finding somebody you're comfortable with. And I say this to to folks all the time, potential actual clients, I say, look, if we don't have a good dynamic, we shouldn't work together. And it's not to judge you. It's not to judge me. It's not to judge your idea. But finding somebody who you feel like you can trust is the most important thing because it is, you need to be able to say, if if I approach a client and I say, hey, look, this is stupid. I need them to believe that I'm coming at it from the right point. Or if I say, hey, look, this is a little stupid, but it makes sense, they also need to understand where I'm coming from. And if they don't have that relationship and that trust, then it doesn't make sense at all. So it is very much, and there are are other folks who do what I do that are out there, and it is very much about finding that relationship. Because if you don't do that, then you're not going to be comfortable and you're not going to make the right decisions. You're going to have friction. You're going to push back and forth. Again, and there's no right or wrong on anything. You know, there's an old story in law school that the answer to any legal question is, well, it depends. Yeah, it depends. Um, but the truth is, if you don't have somebody who understands you, who gets you, who can have that dynamic, that dialogue with you, you're wasting everybody's time.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. Human capital and the alignment of the human capital that's involved with the business, with goal, with vision, with the opportunity that presents itself, with how you want to position yourself in the market. I, I think that's so it's extremely important. So you got a guy, you got an idea, he finds you. Let's stay on a human capital theme. You're hearing that a lot in the world today. How hard is it right now to go and find the people that these companies need to get them through these next stages of growth? And how do you advise those people that are looking for that human capital piece? Because obviously we're, we're only as good as the human capital is the ingredients in an award-winning recipe. You need a great idea, but you need a great chef. You need a bunch of great chefs to execute on that great idea, right? Where do you find the Great people to get stuff done today,
0: and that's the interesting thing. And that you're absolutely right. And that's the hardest part, especially in 2022. I mean, let's be honest. There's just there's so much demand for people, especially the quality people. It's really hard to do, and it seems a little precious to say. But relying on a good network is honestly the best thing that I can advise to people because it is very much about relationships. There is no, again, I've been doing this long enough. I know enough people in different spaces. I know the accounting folks. I know some of the development folks. I know some of the HR folks. I know the international folks and things like that, where I can say, hey, go talk to X. But there's no great way to do that beyond that kind of relationship. And what's interesting is you do end up in sort of a, you do have to be careful with that though, because it's very easy to fall into a mindset where everybody's got the same mindset. You need people who are willing to say, don't do that. You can't just say, oh, I know these guys, I trust them because they're going to say the exact same thing I would say. That does nobody any good. You need somebody who's individually an expert. You need somebody who's individually capable of making an assertive opinion on their own. You know, I know guys who are in the finance space who honestly bright guys, but they'll do, you know, they'll just sit there and they'll say, well, if you say to them, I want to do X, they'll they'll just do X. They won't say, Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, maybe this is better or not. And that's not always the right guy for somebody like that. And so it's a it's a challenge to find that right group. But honestly, apart from relying on those introductions and that kind of dynamic. I don't know that there's a better way. I feel like there should be, but again, I've been doing this a long time and I haven't found one.
1: Uh, look, network's important where they say your net worth is directly connected to your network, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's who you know, who you can call and who you can ask, you know, uh, good questions to that won't always necessarily be just a yes man for you. Right. So Exactly. You need somebody to play contrarian. I, I've got somebody that I need to introduce you to, by the way. That's completely not <laughs> I think you guys might be a good personality fit. All right. So good network. You've spent years building the network. You've got somebody that's got a good idea and it's about building the team around them. When you guys get to the phase where it's about accessing capital or something like that, because you know you, you always got to pour money on this thing to really make it turn in what you want it to. What would the next step? How does that look like?
0: So it depends a little bit on where you are and who you are as a person. This is the interesting discussion that always comes up because money, bringing in money is important. You can't do anything without money, but the flip side is the more you give up money, the more control you have to give up as well. And so figuring that out, especially in those early stages, and this also goes back to laying that grip work I was talking about earlier, is if you set things up in the right way, It allows you to do that kind of thing. But this is where the dynamic becomes somewhat challenging. So if you go out, for example, as I mentioned earlier, there's a woman I spoke with yesterday, a new client I'm helping get going. And she's got her first couple of financers. Um, They're people she knows. And so they're willing to say, hey, look, we trust you. We'll give you a chunk of money, not all the money, but we'll give you a chunk of money. We trust you. We're not going to demand that level of control. And that's important. But what we're doing as I'm setting up her business is I'm saying, hey, look, okay, these guys will get you past the 10-yard line. But if you want to get past midfield, we're going to need to bring in some professional investors. We need to set up the business in a way so that when those guys come in, they're not going to run all over you. And so that's part of the discussion as well, is you need to think about it in stages. And you need to think about how much control do I need? How much control am I willing to give up? And what is that going to cost me? And that's always the interesting challenge with these businesses is because the other thing is you get a lot of folks who have a great idea who, and I don't want to say this in a way that sounds judgmental, they're not good business people, especially in the technology space where you got people who have brilliant ideas, but who aren't necessarily the best managers in the world. And the good ones, the smart ones will say, hey, look, I've got a great technology idea I can manage it to here, but I need to bring in those people around me. And again, that's all part of that dynamic. And that's how it all fits together. And in terms of bringing in money, that's always part of that conversation.
1: Sure, sure. Well, an idea isn't a business, right? And if anybody's ever watched Shark Tank, how many times could you have heard that on Shark Tank? Hey, you got a cute idea there, maybe even a decent little product, but this isn't a business. We're not, that's exactly. not the conversation we're having today, right? And I think as the entrepreneur, sometimes they're too close to that. And they're like, they see it as something maybe bigger and more grandiose than what it actually is at that particular time, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think that you, you hit on something a little bit that I'd like to double back and talk about just a little bit. Um, when we get into the money phase, I've always told people that I think the average uh, entrepreneur thinks, hey, if I could get all of this money in one place, if I could find an investor that would write me this one check to solve all my problems, that that would be a good thing. And I'm like... But the problem with too much money is it comes up with too much control, right? There's too many strings attached to too much money to talk. And I know, you know what I'm talking about. Talk on that a little bit. It'd be fun to hear it from your perspective.
0: No, that's absolutely right. And I go through this This, again. A lot of my clients, they go through this, they set up the company. They've got, you know, we, we, we we set up the corporate structure and we say, Hey, this is great. I'm the shareholder. I own this company and I'm going to start selling off pieces. And So you run into a couple of problems when you sell off those pieces. Obviously, if I'm an investor and I'm writing you a check for $2 million, I expect certain things in return, and that's fair. But should I be entitled as that investor to tell you everything to do? Should I micromanage you? It doesn't make any sense. It's not fair to do it in that way. And so the idea of saying, hey, I'm going to find one investor to write me one giant check, that's exactly the problem that you get is those people who come in Will very often say, Okay, great, I'm gonna write you one giant check. You put a little desk in your corner in the corner of your office, and I'm gonna sit there and look over everything that you do. That's their expectation in return for that. So mm-hmm. the idea of, 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 of doing that is always risky. The other advantage, though, to also having multiple investors is you get a wealth of experience. So to my earlier point about this idea of people who have good ideas but don't necessarily know how to run a business well, one of the good ways to get beyond that is to have a board of directors, to have folks who've done this either in an advisory role or some other capacity, or just folks who are smart or people who have money who are just not you. And so if you bring in multiple investors, you bring in multiple people on your team, you get the advantage of having that board of directors. Now, they may not always agree with you and you need to figure out how to structure things in a way that isn't going to put you at a disadvantage. But if you bring in five or seven investors or however many it is, or whatever is right under the circumstances, and they're all sitting around the table and you say, hey, this is what our quarter looked like. This is what we're planning for next quarter. They'll hopefully, or hopefully rather, ask you the right questions, point you in the right direction, or at least offer you ideas that you can use. And so that's why I'm always reluctant when a client comes in and says, oh yeah, I've got an investor and they're going to write and check for the entire round. That's the risk that you run into bringing in other folks helps in the long run.
1: Sure. Sure. I've said, uh, to people that I've worked with in this space, um, you know, based on the terms that I'm offering you today, I want you to write the biggest check that you'll write based on those terms, but make sure that check's small enough that you don't want to change the terms or take more control or retrade it on me. Whatever that threshold is, take it where I'm offering it right now today, right? Like if you need to write one more dollar and that's going to make you put more strings, I don't want you to write it that big, you know? And Yeah. And the other part that I think you make a great example on that I don't think that I talk about enough, I think this was great, is by taking multiple checks from smart investors at that threshold, you now have fundamentally tapped into their networks and the expertise in their networks and the people in their networks because they're not going to let their dollars squander and die on the vine because if if they've got the resources and tools in their network,
0: they're going to help you get there, right? They're going to help you grow. Well, and that's absolutely right. And the other thing, too, is the folks who do this and do it well, do it often. So very few people just say, oh, I'm going to invest in one company and that's it. They right. usually invest in, you know, five, 10, however many, either directly or as part of a fund or something like that. And right. there's a lot of not only that general advice that I was talking about earlier about, hey, I've done this with 10 different companies. Here's what I've seen before. But also, these companies are often in related industries, or they might be able to make introductions to help you. You know, If I'm a guy who invested in, I invested in Facebook 20 years ago, which you know, if that were the case, I'd be on an island somewhere, but leave that aside. But if I invested in Facebook 20 years ago, and I'm now investing in somebody that's in a related space today, I'm going to A, bring it to the table, my knowledge of what I did at Facebook, but also the ability to say, hey, let me introduce you to you know so-and-so at and Facebook and make that connection. That's also the advantage to having folks who've got different experiences. They've got their networks that you can leverage because they want you to succeed. They want you to succeed. You're all pulling in the same direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. So speaking on that and look, you can pick or choose or you can do both if you want um, share a success story or share an Epic failure, right? Cause <laughs> We, we learn, look, we learn from making mistakes. Anybody out there listening that's acted like they've never made a mistake and done something wrong and they wish they could go back and put the toothpaste back in the tube on some deal, which we know how messy that gets, right? So I'm good with either one or both, you know, those are the things that we learn. And mistakes aren't always catastrophic. They're just things like looking back and like yeah,
0: maybe I should have done that a little different, right? So let me start off by telling you, a success story, and, and I apologize. I'm not going to use names just because you know clients get a little about You're this. But, but I'm going to talk a little bit about a client I've worked with for a bunch of years now, and it's two guys who had an idea. there's a technology-driven idea. They had an idea in the space, and it was it's a space that's been around for a long time, but they had a way to do it differently. They looked at this and they said, "Hey, here's a business, and it's one of those businesses. That, you know, again, it's it's used technology for." 30 years. It's an old line case. But the companies that use the same technology for 30 years were all sort of focused on a narrow mindset. And these guys looked at it and said, hey, if we do it differently, give them the same result, but do it better and shift out of that dynamic, then we'll be able to revolutionize the business. And they came up with the technology, smart guys, very successful, very good at what they did. People love the technology. So the success story, the, their success story is they did a very focused development process. So they looked at it and they said, Hey, we've got an idea. We're going to grow it. And we're going to start at step A and then we're going to step B and step C and step D. And last year, they reached step Z, if you will, where a company came in and said, hey, you guys have built a truly successful business. And what they did is all along the way to the point I was making earlier about planning ahead, about thinking ahead, they laid that foundation. So when this company came in and said, hey, we are going to give you nine figures for your business, it was, a, you know, I mean, it's never easy. When somebody's writing a check that big, it's never an overnight decision. But they were smart enough to have laid the groundwork that it went about as smoothly as you could expect. You know, honestly, it was a bunch of, you know, I mean, the buyer came in and said, hey, what about A, B, and C? And we said, okay, here are your answers. A, B, and C. Great. And every time we were able to do that, the less air we were able to have on the deal, the easier that transaction was. And the reason for that is because these guys from day one thought, and they never planned to sell. I mean, they planned to grow this. They were going to They were going to build it, grow it, keep it, turn it into whatever, their own Fortune 50, but they were able to look at it in a smart way and they always laid that brickwork so that when they reached that point where somebody was willing to throw a bunch of money at them, it was an easy discussion. And that was the kind of thing, again, that I I was glad to be a part of and I was glad to help them with precisely for that point so that when we went to market to sell the company, again, simple and easy. That's the, the best way, one of the best successes I've seen amongst my clients in recent years is just having done that and laid that groundwork. Now, the flip side is, and again, I apologize for not naming names. I feel like I should make up something like WidgetCo or something like that.
1: No, no worries. Flip- no worries. It's just, you know, it's, I think it's the spirit of it. The details, I think everybody can respect privacy and why that doesn't, but it's the concepts, right? People yeah. get buried in the details too much. I think the concepts are what really matter.
0: Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. I I like to tell a good narrative. A good lawyer is a good storyteller. So that's why why I feel like I should make character names up and things like that. But I'll try (laughs) and restrain myself. Fair enough. Um, But to use the flip side, so there was another company I had not worked with them for as long. They were relatively, um, they'd been somewhat established. They brought me in because they'd done, again, they'd worked with large law firms with other folks, things like that. They hadn't had great relationships. So they brought me in a little bit later on and they said, yeah, yeah, we're going, we're going, we're going. And the business wasn't going in the right direction. And again, I came in late, so I didn't look at all of that brickwork that I would have done had I been there early. But the business wasn't going in the right direction. They said, hey, look, we've got enough of an idea, enough of a business that we're going to sell it. Can you help us put that together? So I said, great, we'll sit down, did all of the stuff that I did, again, for this other company that went into the nine figures. I said, okay, here are the 15 questions I know we're going to need to get in order. And they started pulling stuff out. And it was, like the, it was like the technological equivalent of a hoarder where you're starting to pull paper, you know, like the, the, folks, who, the folks who show up at their accountant to do their taxes and they got a shoebox full of crumpled receipts and, and things that have got coffee stains on it. And that's basically the way their documentation worked. And so they handed it to me and they said, well, okay, here's our answers to the questions you've got. And I just sat there and I looked at him and I said, okay, before we go out and talk to anybody we've got to spend a good chunk of time to clean this mess up. Because if we go to somebody right now and say, hey, buy our company, here's our shoebox full of, you know, wet napkins and dirty receipts, it's going to reduce the value of the company, not for any reason other than the fact that they're not going to trust anything that we've put together. And so a large part of what we ended up doing, and again, this was a much smaller deal, you know, this wasn't, anywhere approaching the value of the first example. But a large part of what we did is we spent a good month or two just going through and cleaning up the history and doing all of the stuff that, again, if they'd done it right in the first place mm-hmm. and spent a little bit of time and done it thoughtfully, we wouldn't have had to do. But again, the idea was to bang it into shape so that when we went out to market, we were able to say, hey, look, it looks as good as it's going to good you know, rather than say, here's a shoebox full of crumpled receipts, it was a shoebox full of, you know, flattened out receipts, you know, but basically we made it look a little bit better. And that was honestly, I think that probably, probably knocked, you know, a good 10% off of the, off the value because yeah, again, I, I don't know for sure, but it just didn't look right. And the buyer came in and they were very skeptical. And so unlike the first example where they said, hey, we're going to ask you A, B, and C. And we could say, yeah, great. Here's answers A, B, and C. For the second example, buyer came in and said, hey, we're going to ask you A, B, and C. Well, here's A-ish. Here's B-ish. And it just slowed down the process. It made a little bit more awkward. It made them a little less charitably intended towards the buyer because they felt like things just weren't as together. And so that was the you know, Again, I feel like I did the best I could to help them get into shape. But honestly, if they had done things differently from the beginning, and I'm not saying this, by the way, it's an advertisement for legal services, because God knows spending money on lawyers, you don't have to, is a bad idea. But if they had done that, they would have been, I think, more successful going to market. It would have made it either easier, faster, or higher valuation. It's just my instinct based on years of doing this
1: totally understand. I've got a guy trying to sell a 50-something million dollar piece of real estate right now, and he considers himself uber sophisticated, and he's his mom and pop as you can possibly be. His books and records and his rent rolls and everything else. I've got an institutional buyer that wants to buy the asset. They want all the financials delivered in a certain way. There's not a chance he can deliver them that way. He wants to price it the way that they want to buy it in that world, but he can't deliver the underlying documents to prove the. it's just... Such a disconnect, and you're like, Oh, what a mess, man! What a mess. So, I, I totally get that. Um, interesting question I've got for you. So, maybe you can speak to this. I learned something one time. I had talked to a guy that had grown a business of $25 million, and he decided to step down and put in a new CEO and other people in place. And I found it at the time when I learned this really hard to wrap my brain around. How would I be the person that could grow a business of $25 million and then make the decision to get my butt out of the way and let somebody else do it, right? And, and when he explained to me why I did it, it made a ton of perfect sense. But I guess, have you ever gone through a situation with one of your clients in the early growth phases where they were good enough to get it where it was, but they weren't the long-term solution. And you had to say, maybe you are the friction point.
0: We need to get you out of the way, right? So as I said, I've been doing this a long time. And and a long time ago, I was in-house counsel for a company and the CEO did exactly that. He was honestly, and he's gone on to start another very successful company. He's, yeah, again, one of the smartest guys, one of the guys I have the utmost respect for. He's a guy, if he called me up today, and I haven't worked with him for tw- almost 20 years at this point, but if he called me up tomorrow and said, Mark, I need you, I would, I would just jump. Yeah, he's, I have that much respect for him. He's that smart a guy. He's that honest and that decent a guy. And this first company that he started... He came at, again, hard worker, smart guy, good business guy. I mean, he did not do anything wrong, but he got it to a point where he realized he wasn't that person. And so he kept his seat on the board. He was still involved in sort of a a founder role, but that's exactly what he did. He said, we need a professional CEO because we are getting too big. We're becoming a bigger company because, you know, unlike... That company reached the point where it was starting to expand by acquisition of its own. So mm-hmm. we were getting big enough where we went out and bought a couple of other companies. And by doing that, he realized he wasn't necessarily the right person. Or if he was, he didn't want to be that person because he felt like he wasn't going to do it justice. And so he, he said, let's hire this guy. We went out and we found somebody who was a CEO, who had a history of being a CEO of companies like that. And it took the company. So if the founder started it, a and got it to 20A, this new guy came in and took it from 20A to 200A. And that's exactly the decision he made. Again, I have the utmost respect for him for doing that. And it was a, it was a great decision for the company.
1: Sure. How many business owners in, in just, obviously this isn't are capable of making that decision. Cause it takes a certain level of ego to get a business of 25 million in the first place. How do you check that ego and move it out of the way and say, well, I'm not the person to take it on home from here. Right?
0: Well, that goes back to the point that I was making earlier about having a good board of directors. So if you've got folks who've seen that before, hopefully they will be, and these are guys who know money, who know your industry, whatever it might be. Hopefully these are guys who will sit down with you at the board meeting and say, Hey, great fiscal year 2021 was spectacular. Do you think you're the right guy to do to double that or 10 X that or whatever it is for 2022. And if your board of directors has a good relationship with you and they're smart and they've seen this before, they should be the ones to have that conversation. You know, it shouldn't come from honestly. And again, I've helped with this, but that's not a conversation that should come from somebody who reports to you. It should come from somebody who you view as a peer or Honestly, in the case of a good board, you're basically your managers. And so if they're good and they've got good trust in the company and the idea, and you've got a good relationship and you understand where they're coming from, that's where that should come. That's where that conversation should come in.
1: Very interesting. I think that's great perspective because I think as a business owner grows and, you know, I think ego is a, is a great thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. Right. And I think having okay. checks and balances for that to make sure that people are on, on staying on track and maximizing their own talents. Right. And their own skill, I think, is extremely important. So, well, Mark, this has been great. We're running a little bit towards the end of time. But anything that, you know, uh, that I didn't ask that I should have asked, anything that people should know, like, come on, you know, give me a little inside nugget. What do you got?
0: Yeah, honestly, I think that the two things I will tell you about when you are starting a business is don't do anything that boxes you in. And I say this, this is legally operationally or what have you, but especially in the early days, especially if you are starting, again, to my example about laying the bricks for where you're going to grow, you need to lay those bricks in a way that you can put another story on top of it. And that includes things like how you sell your product. It includes how you go to market, how you brand yourself, who you decide to hire, where you decide to hire, how you set up your corporate structure. You know, All of those things. And again, none of these things are written in stone. Sort of counteract my bricklaying metaphor, but none of the things that you do are necessarily irretrievable. But if you think about, hey, where am I going next? If you've got a plan, whether it's a Formal 20-page decks that show in here's my next 20 years, or even if it's just the back of the envelope, here's where I am, here's where I think I need to be. You need to think about that. You need to lay those steps for that, that going forward. Think a step ahead as you're starting your business. Because again, it may seem like, oh, I don't need to spend this money. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to call up a lawyer or an accountant or anything like that. I don't want to do that. I can do it all myself. The truth is. It is much easier to spend the time, money, and aggravation to do it right than to do it over.
1: Yeah, That's I would the agree.
0: biggest advice I always give.
1: Yep, No, that's, that's great advice. That's great advice. It's hard to go, but there's a whole industry around going back and fixing other people's mistakes. It's easier to do it right the first time. Exactly. So good stuff. Well, Mark, I appreciate the time being on today. Hey, tell the listeners where they can find, how's the easiest way to find Mark Epstein?
0: Well, the easiest way to find me is through my website. It's com. It's a simple little website. The reason for that is because I'm just a guy. I don't have fancy offices or a room full of artwork or 50 paralegals. I'm the guy who builds the relationship. I'm the guy who, as if you were hiring somebody, if you were big enough to hire an attorney full-time, hopefully, I'd like to think hopefully you'd find someone like me. That's who I am. That's the service that I sell. So, yeah, that's why I am what I am. I've been doing this, as you say, for over 20 years. And all I've done primarily to promote myself is rely on other people saying, hey, this guy is good, go hire him, you know? And so, I, you know, I, my reputation is the most important thing that I have to me. It has done me very well. I'm very happy with it. There are folks I've worked with, you know, the, the, my other example, there are folks I've worked with who started four or five sequential companies. And every time they do, they call me up and they say, Hey, Mark, I just started another one. Let's do it again. That's the kind of guy I am. That's the kind of dynamic in a relationship I have. So nothing fancier than that, but that's how you find me. And that's the way I try and work.
1: Well, relationships that survive over time and people that come back to you for more is the, is kind of the the badge of honor or the best compliment we can get, right? It means we did something right the first time. So Good stuff. means you're doing something right. Well, I appreciate you sharing. Thanks so much. And everyone, thanks today for listening to the Tax Alpha podcast. This is Matt Chancey, and we'll see you on the next episode. Great job with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.